Phil Telfy. Today's guest is the founder and executive director of the nonprofit Equal Justice Under Law, which works to end race and class distinctions in the criminal justice system. He was a key early leader in the growing movement to end cash bail in the United States. He'll share insights about his work and his superpower. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show. Phil, thank you so much for joining me for this uh, important conversation. I, I am so excited. I mean, you're doing work that is so important for the world. I'm, I'm really grateful. But uh, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Devin. Thank you. I'm honored to hear you say that, but I'm also uh, very pleased to be on the show. Yeah, well, the work you're doing for uh, kind of social justice is, you know, right where the rubber meets the road in the criminal system. Tell us, give us the big picture for your work. Big picture is big. We want to end inequality in the justice system. And I'll tell you, it's a huge project. There's inequality everywhere we look in the justice system. I founded Equal Just Under Law eight years ago, and I am learning something new every month about new forms of inequality. But in our view, the justice system should treat people equally. Rich or poor shouldn't matter in the justice system. Yeah, that is so incredibly important. And as, as we record this, and I don't want this to become a tangent, but as we record this, we're about... 36 hours after the former president of the United States uh, had his uh, residence uh, searched. And, uh, you know, some po- folks are upset about that, but it, this is evidence of equality in the justice system when powerful, rich people are subject to the same rules. And, of course, a lot of your work is spent at the other end of the spectrum, trying to lift people who are being subjected to penalties from those penalties that are financial and unfair in their circumstances, right? I like the way you frame that, Devin. I I think, you know, sadly, it's commonly known how much easier access is when you're wealthy in the justice system. We all sort of think, okay, a celebrity or a politician or someone with wealth either um, is being investigated or accused of a crime, or it could be an SEC investigation or IRS or whatever it is, we all have this instinct, well, you know, they're going to get the slap on the wrist, right? They're going to have their lawyers, they're going to get off. Um, And, you know, that is unfortunately, I think, largely true. The system rewards wealth, which is crazy to me (laughs) because it's supposed to be a justice system, right? But what you're saying is there's another dark side of that that is equally painful, is that people without money are really getting screwed by our system. And it's it's in ways that, like I said, I didn't even know about when I started working in Equal Justice Under Law. The system literally punishes people who are poor and creates cycles of poverty. So we're not seeing what I thought, you know, when I was growing up, I thought it was, well, you know, if you work hard, you can get ahead. Oftentimes it's governments and judicial systems that are causing problems in people's lives. People who have never been convicted of a crime all of a sudden have seen their life unravel because of what I call the criminalization of poverty. You haven't broken any laws, but just being poor is criminalized in this country effectively. And it was one of the founding principles of the country that that not happened. Right. So we have wandered off the reservation, so to speak, in that regard. Exactly. Well, you know, it's one of these great gaps between our values, our values as a nation, but also individual people. 
almost every person I talk to about the work of equal justice under law agrees the justice system should be equal. Rich and poor, wealth should not matter. Now, we have disagreements in other areas of society, be it education or healthcare or so many other fields. There's wide debate on how much wealth should increase your opportunities, right? But when we look at the justice system, it's almost universally agreed in this country that rich versus poor should not make a difference. That's our value system. And almost everyone I talk to shares that. I've yet to really meet someone who says, well, you know, if you don't have a lot of money, maybe you should get worse treatment. I just haven't heard that position. <laughs> yeah, It's yeah. not a political position that's out there. At the right. same time, even though it's a universally shared value, it's equally agreed that the system is not equal, that people who don't have money are gonna face worse outcomes. So there's this huge gap as to what we want and what we know is happening. And we haven't been able as a society to close that, to make the facts match our values as much. And that's the work of Equal Justice Under Law, trying to figure out how can we get the equality that basically everybody wants into the justice system. Now you've been successful in making some progress, I think around the country really, by bringing attention to this issue around uh, cash bail. Right. I, I still have, trouble understanding the problem with it. So I want you to explain why that's so discriminatory yeah. and and then give us an update on, on, on the progress you're making. You know, I, I feel very lucky and proud of the work we've done. So cash bail was one of the first issues we started working on eight years ago. And we were the first nonprofit in the country to start challenging the use of cash bail. The basic issue, if you haven't been arrested before, you might not have seen it. In this country, when you're arrested for a crime by a police or sheriff, you're typically taken to the county jail. They lock you in a cell and tell you you're arrested for X, Y, Z, and your bail amount is $10,000, $50,000, $100,000. And I'm not just making these numbers up. They tend to be huge amounts. It's not, you know, it's not $50. It's, it's in the thousands. The five and six figures is very common. We have a client who was accused of shoplifting from a department store and her bail was $30,000. So, you know, you should expect to hear large amounts. Now, what's happened? You've been accused of a crime, not convicted. You might still be innocent. And you've got a, a price tag now on your freedom. You're told, okay, we arrested you for shoplifting, $30,000 to get out of this jail cell. You haven't been convicted of any crime. It's effectively a price tag, right? If you can afford that $30,000, you walk out right at that moment. If you can't, you're going to stay in jail for weeks, months, or maybe years pending trial if you're fighting your case. And so what happens is those who have money can buy their way out of jail and have all the advantages that includes. They can keep their job. They can prepare for their defense. They can maintain their family relationships. They can stay in their housing, etc. Our clients and all the work that Equal Justice Under Law does is pro bono on behalf of people who can't afford lawyers. Our clients can't afford a $30,000 bail, so they're stuck in jail. So all of the, the opposite happens. They can't prepare for their defense. One of our clients was a single parent. Well, those children are being taken into protective services, right? Now they're their wards of the state, right? So it's destroying family relationships. You're probably losing your job if you're in jail for even a couple of days, particularly low paying jobs. They don't have a lot of flexibility if you've missed work, right? If you miss a rent payment, your housing now is maybe pulled from under you. Most of the people we represent end up not actually even being convicted of anything. 
that example I gave you of the person who was accused of shoplifting and got $30,000 in bail, her charges were dropped. She was actually never prosecuted. So she spent several days in jail because she couldn't afford the $30,000, lost her job and other consequences, but was never even charged with a crime, never convicted, has no criminal record. People don't realize this, but just because you're arrested really does not mean that you're guilty. In a lot of jurisdictions, an average is 70% of people who are accused of crimes end up not being prosecuted because, you know, police are doing hard work, right? They're getting a tip. They're, you know, they're trying to gather suspects, but not everyone who's arrested is guilty. That aside, right, it's the whole notion of should there be a price tag on your freedom? Should your ability to prepare for your defense depend on your ability to pay money bail? In almost every part of the country, it does. Um, I'll add to this, Devin, we have filed 12 lawsuits on this issue, and we have had tremendous success. We've won every single one of those lawsuits, either through settlement or court order. So we are starting to see through our work, jurisdictions, counties, and states moving away from a money bail system and trying to implement something that's more fair, that's not based on how much money you have. So I am really optimistic on this issue that there can be a change of thinking and a system that doesn't discriminate based on wealth status. Money bail is the first issue you tackled, and it's a great example of this sort of injustice in the justice system. What are some of the other examples of things you're working on today? Well, I want to highlight where those other examples led us, because yeah, money bail was the first issue we started working on. We have actually learned of new issues through our clients, and that's how a lot of civil rights lawyering works is it's not, I mean, people think, oh, these, you know, great, smart, talented people, like a lot of people I work with, maybe just, you know, they, they file these lawsuits. A lot of it comes from the people who are experiencing the injustice that we're trying to challenge. So it's through clients, people who were detained on money bail, that we started to learn of other issues. The next issue we learned about, which I had not even heard about, was driver's license suspensions for unpaid court debt. Hundreds of thousands of people in this country have a suspended driver's license, even though they're good drivers, solely because of unpaid court debt. They may never have had a traffic infraction in their life. They could have a perfect driving record, but if they pick up a fine, you know, for whatever it could be, it could be shoplifting, it could be littering, it could be anything. We had a client with a $150 fine. $150 to a lot of people doesn't sound like a ton of money, but for our client, her name was Adrian, $150 was a lot of money. She was a single parent. She was working full-time job, but living paycheck to paycheck. This is not someone who is saving money because every single dollar that comes in needs to go out for a necessary expense for herself or her children. So it's, and it's not on frivolous things, it's rent, it's clothing, it's food, it's school supplies, right? So when every dollar that's coming in is going to a necessary expense, you don't save $150. It takes, you know, indefinite. You're never gonna save even at a dollar a month, you know, it's gonna take forever. So she didn't have the $150 and she lost her driver's license as a result. Well, I think people can understand what's gonna happen. Once you lose your driver's license, in 80% of cases, the next thing that happens is you lose your job. Because a lot of people, especially people living in poverty, who are working in low-wage jobs, when they can't drive to work, if they're relying on public transportation, I mean, just think of the city you live in, there's very few towns in the United States where public transportation can reliably get you to work on time and you're working a low-wage job, and you're late once or twice, you're probably fired. And so that cycle just downward spirals, right? You lost your license, then you lost your job. In a lot of states, that debt that caused you to lose your license 
compounds. And so after a few months, it's doubled and quadrupled and multiplied. And so your debt only grows and you've never been able to pay it back. All for some petty infraction, for some minor thing that wasn't even can, a crime. It can grow out of something as benign as an overdrawn checking account, right? Exactly. Any fee that you pick up. I mean, we had I, I interviewed someone who got a fine because he didn't mow his lawn, like the grass in his front yard. There was a city ordinance that said it had to be below three inches or whatever. Um, and you could debate whether these laws make sense. He picks up a small fine. I think it was $40, $45, a small thing, but he couldn't afford to pay it. And then with late fees and compound, you know, the way that counties do it is they tend to compound. You know, that all might make sense for someone who is refusing to pay, who just kind of, uh, you know, thumbs their nose at authority. But in the vast majority of cases, people want to pay their debts. They just can't afford to. And to punish someone who wants to pay but can't afford to only creates more problems. A theme of our work, and when we file these lawsuits, it's not vindictive. We don't have really a punitive mindset. We're not trying to sort of punish evildoers. What we want to see is states and cities adopting policies that work for everyone. What often happens when we talk about someone being stuck in jail, even though they haven't been convicted of a crime, or someone losing their driver's license, even though they're a great driver, that's a bad thing, not just for our clients, but for the city, for the state, for the community. If someone's losing their job, if someone can't take care of their kids, nobody's benefiting from that, right? And so we're looking for solutions that improve life for everybody. Yeah. Are there other examples of the things that you're working on? I, I imagine yeah. there are. Yeah, there's so many. There's so many. There's a couple I want to highlight just because they're things that I've learned about and really expose how pervasive this inequality is. You know, we talked about money bail at arrest. We talked about things like driver's license suspensions. What I've been learning about recently, again, from our clients is expungements. Every state allows you to expunge an old criminal record. Usually there's about a 10 year waiting period. And if it's a minor conviction, they'll expunge it. And the philosophy here is good. It's because, especially for minor offenses, you don't want that hanging on your record. A lot of employers will discriminate based on past criminal convictions. A lot of landlords will make it harder to get housing based on past criminal convictions, even if they're very old, even if they're irrelevant things. I mean, sometimes it's for things that aren't even illegal anymore, right? It's for minor drug offenses or things that the state has decided, well, we probably were a little too harsh back in the day. We can decriminalize some of this activity, right? So it's a good, it's a good policy. Every state allows it. Every state allows some kind of expungement. But a lot of states will charge fees to get that expungement, sort of filing fees, paperwork fees. We filed a lawsuit in Louisiana where the fee to get a record expunged is $550. $550 is a lot of money for someone who cannot find a job, who's being discriminated against because of an old conviction. And it's per event. So to illustrate that, we have a client, he's a server at a restaurant waiting tables, right? Making very low income has two convictions and two arrests. All of them are over 15 years old. For those four events, multiplied by $550, it costs $2,200 for an expungement of four very minor, very old convictions. Over $2,000 for an expungement is out of reach for all of our clients, for people who are living on the edge of poverty. It's just not an amount they can afford to make. But think about how counterproductive the system is. These are the people that voters and the state actually want to be working, want to be getting higher paying jobs, want to have that record cleared so they can get that second chance. 
Another thing I want to highlight, Devin, which again, I'm learning about through the job and through our clients is the privatization and the monetization of our criminal justice system, which to me is a tragedy. More and more aspects of what we think of as justice are now for sale. It's going to the highest bidder. Private companies are taking over different components of our justice system. And the most common, I mean, people have heard about private prisons. That's a big one. And abuses tend to run rampant. We're seeing it more and more when it comes to pretrial supervision and probation after trial. Private companies are moving into these spaces. Now, private companies can do some great things. You know, I'm talking on a computer that's made by a private company. I'm not saying the government has to do everything. But what we've seen when it comes to a justice system and the concept of justice is that private companies tend not to put justice first. They tend to have other priorities. Typically, they're stockholders. The stockholders want to see the company making money, right? That's the reason they're investing in the company. And so I'm not saying, it, 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 not saying it's surprising, but when you have that profit motive, instead of that justice motive, constitutional rights tend to get violated. So what we see is extortion. We see people who are purporting for probation, instead of getting support from a probation officer, they're getting threatened by their probation officer. And not, oh, you gotta follow the law, you gotta straighten up. Sure, probation officers often wanna get people in line to follow the law. But when it's a private company, the threats are, you have to pay us more money or I'll send you to jail. What ends up happening is people will beg, borrow, whatever they need to do to get that money. Because if you haven't broken the law and you're being threatened with jail, you want to stay out. You might have family to take care of, et cetera. Um, a lot of people don't have that money. Their friends and family don't. And so they're ending up in jail because a private company is threatening them with jail because the private company wants to make money. And this is happening all over the country. You know, a lot of our work is it, it's not regional. You know, we're based in Washington, D.C. We're a nonprofit, but our work is national. And when I started, we started filing lawsuits in places like Alabama and Mississippi, some, some sort of deep south states. It's not limited to any region. We've had cases in New England. We've had cases on the West Coast and the Midwest. Every part of the country, we're seeing these issues of wealth inequality. And I'll, one thing I'll add, Devin, is I don't think we've seen the end of it. You know, I've been doing this work eight years when I founded Equal Justice Under Law, every year we find a new issue that comes up and a new way that the law is designed to punish people experiencing poverty. Yeah. Have you had any experience looking at uh, the fees associated with getting voting rights back? It seems yeah. <laughs> like that's another discriminatory practice Absolutely. that's going on in some states, right? It's another area we are working on. Exactly. We're, we filed lawsuits challenging this process. And what it is, is in most states, when you get convicted of a felony, you lose the right to vote. In almost every state, once you finish serving your time, once you get out of prison, you're eligible to vote again. And that's typically what, you know, how people think the system should work. Don't, you can't vote while you're serving your time. But once you've paid your debt to society, we'd like you to become, you know, a contributing citizen, a contributing member of society again. But in a lot of places, you have to pay fees, essentially processing fees, but they can amount to hundreds of dollars to file paperwork to get the right to vote back. So we have a lawsuit, for example, in Tennessee going right now, where over 300,000 people who are eligible to vote because they finished serving their time and the law says you have the right to vote, can't vote 
only because of the paperwork and the fees that are involved to get that right back. It's an insane system. And one thing that's happening, which is extreme, it's the dark side of this, is it tends to be race-based. Tennessee, the, the, the state we're suing, has the, actually the highest percentage of disenfranchisement of African-American voters, people who are eligible to vote, because of this law, because of the labyrinthine process, the paperwork and the fees that are involved to get their right to vote back. And again, Devin, we're talking about eligible voters who, according right. to the state law, should be voting. You know, we want them voting. The legislature wants them voting. The population wants them voting. They've decided, look, you should you should vote again. But then fees come in the way. Um, and it's there's so many different areas where we see this. We're seeing more and more counties charging fees for pretrial supervision. So you're charged with a crime. You're not in jail, but you have to pay a monthly fee to be supervised by the county pretrial. It effectively is like being fined prior to conviction, which is a questionable practice by itself is, well, if you haven't been convicted of a crime, why are you getting these fines, right? But what's really happening, and this is devious, is a lot of people can't afford to pay those pretrial supervision fees, those fines prior to conviction. And so the prosecutor will say, well, if you plead guilty today, then all those fees end, right? Because they're pretrial supervision fees. Well, once your case resolves, we'll stop charging you the money. And so people who can't afford the fees end up feeling like they have to plead guilty, even if they had a good defense or even if they were innocent, they feel like they have to plead guilty so they're stopped, they don't have to pay what amounts to hundreds of dollars a month in pretrial supervision fees. This is a relatively new practice we've just discovered. A lot of our issues are things that there hasn't been really much work on. There hasn't been much litigation. It's funny as a civil rights lawyer, when we file a lawsuit, we usually look to see, well, what else has been filed? You know, is there precedent? You know, has other courts right. ruled on this? <laughs> For basically every one of the issues I'm talking about, there is no precedent. Nobody else has filed yeah. this lawsuit. We're the first ones to do it. And so we are making law. And, and it's not just us, of course, the judges who are, you know, reviewing our lawsuits and, and um, you know, using their intellect. But it's a whole new world to try to figure out how can we help reform a justice system that is overridden with inequality to match the value of equality that we all want to have. You're doing amazing work. Uh, and uh, I'm just thrilled uh, by the progress you're making. Uh, I'm astounded by the problems you're discovering. Uh, you're a remarkable guy. Uh, I, I, you know, you don't have to be a Harvard-trained lawyer to appreciate that, that just being a Harvard-trained lawyer, as you are, is a big deal. But to, to be a law review uh, dude uh, is, is huge. I mean, it's a tiny fraction of the tiny fraction of people that get into Harvard Law, and yet that's you. And you have chosen, rather than go to Wall Street or Washington, you are working uh, for that the poorest of the poor. Uh, you know, you're Mother Teresa's lawyer. Uh, you're a remarkable guy. What What is your superpower? Well, I don't know if superpower is the right word for me, Devin. I know you have a lot, you've met a lot of superheroes. Um, I mean, I think for me, I was, I was very lucky. I had sort of the, the, um, I'm not even sure what it is, exposure to inequality. Um, and it was a, it was a funny life path for me, you know, um, I wouldn't call my upbringing poor, but it definitely wasn't rich, you know, um, 
I'll just say that I make more money now than my parents made combined growing up as a, as a nonprofit lawyer. You know, I'm not, I'm not rich either now, but you know, we grew up humble. We grew up humble is what I would say. Um, I never wanted for food, but it also wasn't one of these kids that would get, you know, everything on my, on my Christmas list or whatever. My brother and I used to know that we'd get the first thing on our Christmas list. Right. And that's how we did it. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily um, spoiled. Um, But it was a suburban upbringing and it was a little bit of a sheltered upbringing. You know, I didn't know about homelessness for example, I didn't know about inequality, not just in the justice system, but in the, in society. Um, I went to public schools growing up, graduated from a big public high school, and I had friends from, you know, I had friends from across the economic spectrum, but never had really seen wealth, like real, um, you know, that sort of like the top 1%, maybe even not even the top 10%. I just hadn't seen it. I didn't know it existed. But I also didn't necessarily see people who were living on the streets. You know, again, I grew up in Sacramento, but in a sort of suburban type of feel. Um, So I wasn't exposed to either end. I didn't see homelessness, at least in person, and I didn't see that extreme wealth. Then I went to Harvard for college, where I saw both for the first time. You know, I was an 18-year-old, and both were equally shocking to me. I saw this tremendous wealth. I had classmates whose last names were the same as the buildings that I was going to class in because their parents or grandparents had donated to Harvard University and gotten the building named after them. You know, one of my classmates was a movie star, Natalie Portman. Another was the son of a vice president, Al Gore, Al Gore Jr., was one of my classmates. So you, you saw this immense wealth. And at the same time, I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where there are people sleeping on the sidewalk, which I had not seen. You know, I've gone back to Sacramento and downtown. Absolutely. You'll see homelessness, but it wasn't exposed to me as a high school student in a more suburban setting. So I get to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I see both ends. And I'll tell you, Devin, that tragedy has stuck with me. You know, 20 years later, I still feel how can we live in a country that allows this kind of inequality? It doesn't feel right to me. You know, I don't have a grand philosophy on it. It's more of an emotional reaction. And I still feel that pain of what do we think of each other that we would literally let someone starve to death in a gutter because we haven't figured out a way to take care of each other. And so that pain is a lot of what motivates me. Yeah. And while you were at Harvard, uh, you worked on running the homeless shelter there, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, not quite at Harvard, but yeah, in Cambridge, there's there's a few shelters. Of course, Boston, people know, gets notoriously cold winters. Um, you know, people who live on the streets die every winter in Boston because of the cold temperature, you know, hypothermia, frostbite, and things like that. Um, and I was very lucky in a volunteer capacity to become a director of a homeless shelter um, you know, before I went to law school and got to see firsthand what do we offer. And it's sadly very little. You know, our society relies on nonprofits and a lot of volunteerism to take care of each other. Right. It wasn't really government support. We were not a government shelter. Um, it was a small shelter, 24 guests per night. Um but even then you form relationships with people. One of our guests died, a very memorable, still sad, sad experience for me. You just see how hard it is to make it. Uh, another thing I saw, which, which I didn't know, a lot of people don't know because of stereotypes, 60% of the homeless population in Boston, at least when I was in the, sh- in the shelters in there, 60% have full-time jobs. 
right? Which surprised a lot of people. You're preaching, oh, well, they just sit on the sidewalk with a cup, right? Asking for money. That's not true for most people. Most people are hardworking. There's still a lot of discrimination in the society. A lot of it's race-based. A lot of it is based on economics. If you don't have a home address, if you're giving someone the address of a homeless shelter when you're applying for a job, they're very unlikely to call you back for that interview. You know, um, there's just so many prejudices and it's very hard to get out of poverty. So I saw that. And then I went to law school and saw how the justice system, which I believe so much in, you know, I still am an idealist, but that it's creating these cycles of poverty in some of the ways we discussed. Um, I just have this feeling that we deserve better, you know, and I've never been mistreated. I haven't been on the wrong end of the justice system. I've been lucky in that sense. But I still feel like I deserve better. I want to live in a society that is more humane. I try to live that myself. You know, um, I live in a big city. There are people who do ask for money on the sidewalk. I make it a point in my personal life to say hello to every single person who talks to me, to give every single person who's asking for money a dollar, which is not a lot of money. You know, a dollar doesn't do much, but it's at least that that effort of human dignity. It's like, I'm not just going to walk by and ignore that someone is asking something, you know, I can at least respond and give, you know, what I can. Um, I think if our society did that, we'd see better outcomes, again, not just for certain people, but for everyone. I think everyone would benefit if we had a more equal society. Yeah. This is profoundly important stuff. As you think about how your perspective, that that jarring experience going from suburban Sacramento to urban Cambridge, seeing rich and poor in shocking extremes, how would you coach people to uh, develop that perspective? Um, they Somehow they I want you to imagine that they've reached this point in life without achieving it, uh, even if they've seen rich and poor. Well, you know, I think it's just the humanity. And I'm glad you asked about my experience as a, as a director at a homeless shelter, because when you get face to face with someone who is really ignored by society, um, who's really like, I, I think of our society just leaving you to die, you know, um, we just don't, there's no guarantee in the society, right? No one's going to ensure your health or that you're fed or that you're, you know, clothed or sheltered. Like that is kind of up to you and a robust system of largely nonprofit entities that are trying to be supportive. Um, you start to learn about people's experiences. You start to see how hardworking they are. I mean, it was, it was such a funny irony. I was at Harvard for college and law school. It's this elite institution. And yet the hardest working people I knew weren't my classmates. They weren't these people who were going to Wall Street making literally seven figures a year in salary, right? They were some of the guests at our homeless shelter, right? These are sometimes people working multiple jobs and, and hard work, right? Manual labor and cleaning and dirty work, right? It wasn't sitting at a desk crunching numbers. Um, I just saw some of the hardest working people and I still do, I will say, Devin, um, now, even though I'm a civil rights lawyer by day, I try to dedicate my evenings and weekends as much as I can to staying in touch with the community. So I volunteer at a food kitchen. I help run a mentoring program, you know, helping local public high school students. 
Um, I volunteer with people recovering from mental health disabilities. Um, and I don't say this as a sacrifice. It's um, when you're exposed to the full breadth of human experience, I just think, at least for me, it's helped me stay aware of the kind of person I want to be and the kind of society I want to live in. And for me, it's not this, it's not, we're not yet there. We're not in the society that I think matches my value system. Um, but to, you know, to a point you mentioned when we were chatting before this started, a lot of my classmates have gone more the financial route. You know, um, when you think about Harvard University, Harvard Law School, a lot of them do go to these big, you know, institutions of finance or corporations, you know, corporate law firms. And they are making, it's funny seeing some of my classmates making the millions, you know, and here I am, I've been non nonprofit and government my whole career. Um, I think when you, when you expose yourself to a very limited subset of society, it does change who you are in good and bad. And I'm not, I'm not going to criticize anyone's life path, but the choices that you make can shape you. I think about this with friends. You know, I've been really lucky to have some of the most altruistic people I know are close personal friends of mine. And in an unconscious way, that continues to shape you. Um, I did want to add one other thing, Devin, if I could, um, because I am, you know, I'm a lawyer, uh, run a nonprofit here at Equal Just Not Law. We have interns and interns are often thinking, well, I want to be a public interest lawyer, you know, after I graduate law school, what should I keep in mind? And the advice I typically give, but this applies to everyone, lawyers, non-lawyers, whatever profession, is personal budget. I encourage people to think about their personal budget before they start making the big bucks or small bucks, you know, if you go nonprofit, whatever path it is, how much money do you need, right? Um, and I don't even say shortchange yourself, you know, but just think about what do you need for housing? What do you need for food? What do you need for clothing? I set that budget in law school and I created a maximum income for myself. I just said, here's how much I need. And I thought about one day I'll have maybe kids of my own. I want to save for their education, whatever, whatever it is. I'm not going to be judgmental about what's in your budget, but actually create it. And I said it and I have not changed my maximum income in the 14 years since I've been working. And my salary, by the way, surpassed that income two or three years into working, even though I've been a public interest lawyer the whole career. It just, it passed my needs and I've given, I've donated every dollar I've made above that to charity the whole time. I haven't changed my income. I haven't thought, oh, well, I need to, now that I'm making more, maybe I should expand things. I haven't needed to, you know? And so when you think about your budget and what you need, instead of just spending the money that comes in, well, spend, spend what you need, you know, and be generous to yourself for sure. But if you make more than that, maybe there are some causes that you want to donate to or some, you know, charities or nonprofits that you'd like to support. Um, and I found that that money goes a long way, you know, so I try to do obviously public interest work, but some people can't, some people don't um, have that interest or that skill set, right? And they're just trying to get by. But if you're making extra money, and you can contribute to a nonprofit that you support, you really can make a huge difference. So I think there's a lot of ways that people can find to con to contribute to their values. Yeah, that's a great, great reminder. Uh, <laughs> Where where are you in the world right now? <laughs> in the middle of a thunderstorm? It's, it's uh, a little scary here, Devin. So our office is in downtown Washington, D.C. Um, uh, I don't know if you're seeing the flashes, but uh, there's quite a <laughs> lot. It's like um, it's a little bit of that wrath of God feeling right now. Like it's pouring yeah. rain. There's flash of lightning. And it's not too far from where I am because, you know, that, yes, that old, so. you, know you count the seconds yes. and you hear the thunderclaps. 
<laughs> Don't go outside right now. Just exactly. Keep- no, you got to stay safe. Stay indoors. When there's thunder, stay indoors. Yeah. So uh, I- I'm thrilled that we've had a chance to to visit, Phil. I'm grateful for everything you've explained. I'm grateful for the great work you're doing. Before you go, would you take a minute and tell people how they can learn more about your work? Yep. Maybe how they could support you uh, and how they can connect with you. Yeah, connecting, learning, and support, they're all the ways we'd love to engage. We're a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C., but our work is nationwide. Going to our website, equaljusticeunderlaw.org. Uh, I'm very pleased because of the good work we've done. You know, Google and the other search engines recognize us. So if you do a, just do an internet search for equal justice under law, you'll find us. Uh, you know, as a nonprofit, the first thing we need is money. You know, it takes money to do our work. And so we every every dollar, every donation goes a long way. Um, but we also love building the community. We love growing our network, growing our supporters. We've got uh, social media. We've got mailing lists. We'd love for people to sign up to follow what we're doing. Uh, I'll say that as someone who follows a lot of other nonprofits, I'm a big believer in limited mass emails. So when you sign up for our stuff, you're not going to get six emails a day. <laughs> you know, we try to do about once a month or one, you know, just the actual updates. Um, so, we, you know, when you see it from both sides, you learn how to respect, you know, the people who are following you. They don't necessarily want to be drowned out by you. Um, but Equal Just Under Law, I think, is a great resource for information about inequality and I would love to continue the conversation with followers, with supporters, um, however people want to connect. Fantastic. Well, Phil, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. We wish you every success in the incredibly important work that you're doing. Thank you, Devin. It's been great talking. All righty. Let's do some good. Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show twice each week. We host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit DevonThorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.